a battered economy, an ailing healthcare system, and a government divided. As the coronavirus spun our world upside down, American journalists rose to the occasion, delivering important coverage of the crisis from the front lines. Stephanie Mehta, Editor-in-Chief at Fast Company, is one of those working to provide vital information for a business community caught in the crosshairs of a deadly pandemic and government reaction. In this episode of Influencers, Stephanie Mehta joins me to discuss COVID-19, its impact on American workers, and what it all means for the economy moving forward. Welcome to Influencers. I'm Andy Serwer, and welcome to our guest, Stephanie Mehta, Editor-in-Chief of Fast Company. Stephanie, nice to see you. Thanks for having me, Andy. So let's talk a little bit about your job, what you do, but also the environment that we're in. And I'm wondering how coronavirus and a pandemic is connected to your work at Fast Company and how you cover things. Yeah, you know, uh, first of all, thanks again for, for having me as part of the program. Um, this has been, as everybody has experienced, um, you, a, a, both a, a trying time, but it's also been a very inspiring time for those of us in the field of, of journalism. I think that, you know, there have been some wonderful opportunities to tell stories. For Fast Company, we're a, we're a business publication. But we're a little bit of an unusual business publication. Um, since its inception 25 years ago, Fast Company has kind of leaned into the parts of business that weren't traditionally covered by the likes of the Wall Street Journal or our former employer, Fortune Magazine. You know, we've really emphasized uh, design and design thinking, which is something that the rest of the business world is now really starting to embrace. Creativity in business, which again wasn't something that you were seeing business publications writing about when Fast Company started, but now everybody in business is really talking about the role of creativity. And then social impact, you know, has long been a hallmark of this publication. And again, you know, whether it's the business roundtable statement of purpose or people talking about inclusive or conscious capitalism, the world of business has really come around to this conversation as well. And so for us at Fast Company, writing about the crisis, we're, we're not a healthcare publication. We're not somebody that's covered pharma really aggressively. So what we've really looked at this as an opportunity to do is write about the role of creativity, uh, the role of design, and design in particular in you know, design-oriented companies have played a really interesting role in trying to figure out you know, how can we 3D print parts for respirators? Um, how can companies like Dyson the maker of uh, hair dryers and um, you know, vacuum cleaners. What, what are they able to do to begin to create parts and products for healthcare workers? The ways that fashion designers have really changed their businesses so that they can help just deliver PPEs to healthcare workers. That's sort of been the way that we've approached the story. And our readers have responded, um, like a lot of, um, of, of digital sites, We've seen unprecedented traffic and unprecedented demand for our content, in part because we're telling a slightly different story. And for the most part, it's it's an optimistic story. It's about the role that creativity and innovation is playing in helping address some of the healthcare crisis. 
Yeah, we've seen um, along with those higher viewership and readership numbers, Stephanie, though, um, the business is challenged because advertisers are concerned about putting their ads up there. And I wonder, you know, what your take is on that. And, you know, you worked at a local newspaper. What is it? The Virginia something pilot. The Virginian pilot and Ledger Star in Virgin Norfolk, Virginia. Yeah. And so, you know, you know, local news and they're hurting as well. Any thoughts on the industry writ large that way? Yeah, it is unquestionably a really tough time for the industry. And I, I do worry that the local news organizations are, are really going to struggle through this because they were they were suffering to begin with. They were disproportionately impacted by the disappearance of classified advertising, disproportionately uh, hurt by the disappearance of um, big box retailers in their communities. Um, and now I think disproportionately affected by um, you know, the, the multitude of, of news sources that are, for better or for worse, kind of trying to fill the void. Um, some of them being, you know, reported news sources, but many of them being um, social platforms that don't necessarily do the kind of fact checking and, and verification that your organizations and mine and even local papers have, have historically done. Um, you know, I, I think for all of us in the business, um, you know, the the there's a couple of of levers we have available to us. One is that I I do think that the the growing readership and the growing demand for uh, verified and and fact checked news in, in this environment, I I think readers are starting to really appreciate uh, organizations like ours that provide really good information, verified information, but also in the case of of a lot of our publications. You know, information about how people can help. Um, I, I think that one of the things that has been really heartening in my period of time as editor of Fast Company is to see that some of our best performing stories are stories where we tell readers, you know, here are the places where you can donate your time and your money that are verified and validated and places where, you know, we know that the money is going to go to a good cause. Those stories do really well for us. And I think it's because audiences and readers are really interested to know how they can do their part. So I think that's going to be good for journalism. Uh, we're starting to see um, people pay for content, which is something that, you know, news organizations have really struggled with since the onset of, of the Internet. Um, so paywalls are going up and people are paying for content. And then I think the last thing is that, you know, at, at some point there will be a different tenor to the story. At some point, especially publications like Yahoo Finance and, and, and Fast Company, it's not going to be the story of the crisis. It's going to be the story of the recovery. And those are going to be the kinds of stories that advertisers will want to be associated with. Right. Part of your remit, Stephanie, is understanding work and work processes and, again, creative ways to work. What have you discovered or learned or seen during this time that speaks to new ways of working? Yeah, it's really interesting. We've been doing a couple of webinars on our site about remote teams. And we had a remote team uh, expert, Keith Ferrazzi. Many of you may know Keith. He's a former chief marketing officer of um, the hotels and also um, has been you know, sort of a, a consultant to business for many years. And one of the things that Keith was pointing out, and, and I have to concur with this, is that, you know, teams weren't working that well before we went into remote work. Um, you know, anybody who manages a team can probably attest that, you know, there are a lot of ways that teams are dysfunctional and are broken. 
And so why not use this new way of working remotely as a reset? And I think a couple of the things that have been really interesting for me to observe as I've um, started to manage a remote team and, and at Fast Company, about 20% of my team was already working remotely and working from their home offices because we don't have bureaus all over the country. And I think one of the things that's been really great to observe is that uh, Zoom can be very democratizing or Skype can be very democratizing. Um, you know, it doesn't matter if you live in a city or if you live in a suburb, if you live in the country or if you live, you know, in an exurb, you're kind of very much on an even playing field when you're all on, on, on a video conferencing platform. And so I think the ability for some of those biases and some of those um, prejudices, uh, th those can go away. I think it's also easier if you're a manager you know, unlike in a um, conference room where you're seeing some of your workers, but the, the others are dialing into a, a phone, um, with Zoom, you can really see everybody. And, you know, in meetings, I really encourage everybody to turn on their cameras rather than hiding behind the sort of anonymity of a picture of their dog, um, which is fun, too. But when you can see everybody, I think if you're the team leader, it really gives you an opportunity to, again, like everybody is on the same same playing field. But it also enables you to call on people in a way that you might not be able to in the sort of traditional conference call environment. And for the people who are sometimes the quietest people, the people who don't always have an opportunity to contribute, you can really kind of call them into the conversation. So that's one of the ways where I found remote work could potentially be really equalizing. I think the last thing I'll quickly say on this is that, you know, I was talking to someone on another webinar who said, we're all the BBC guy now. You know, the famous case of the the, the commentator for uh, this, uh, a guy was being interviewed by the BBC. His kid came into the room. His wife rushed in to try to get the kid out of the room. You know, I think there have been um, a lot of instances over the years where working parents have had to try to hide the fact that they're working parents. You know, instead of saying that I have to take my kid to the doctor they say, I have an appointment, or instead of saying, you know, instead of leaving early to go to a kid's lacrosse match, they'll have to pretend and say, oh, I've got a got an appointment uptown. You know, everybody is seeing our own, our, our colleagues' family lives play out in real time on these, um, these conference calls. And I think that that has, you know, that has had a really softening effect in some ways, where working parents don't have to pretend anymore that they aren't working parents. Yeah, I mean, that parent thing, just to follow up on that, Stephanie, is tough. And um, particularly for women, I don't understand how women are able to have school-age kids at home and do their jobs. And you're one of those people. So how do you pull that off? I mean, it must be difficult. Well, I'm very fortunate because um, my children are older. They're, I have a high school freshman and a high school junior. So they're much more self-sufficient on the um, homeschooling front. Um, you know, they're proficient with their technology, which, you know, for better or for worse. Okay. <laughs> um, but I have a lot of working parents who have much younger children. And, you know, it, it is a struggle. We, again, you know, the, the, the kids will come in with the computer or the iPad in the middle of a, a, a meeting, you know, and they're genuinely panicked because the class is supposed to start and they can't get onto the call. Um, and I think, you know, as I said, I, I think that as as bosses and as leaders, we've just come to be much more accommodating of those things. Um, you know, I, I do, you know, candidly worry, though, about burnout from my my 
uh, working parent employees because, you know, they're all super diligent. They're in many cases working sort of a three hours on, three hours off or two hours on, two hours off schedule. But because they're still trying to work a full eight plus hour day, you know, for many of them, their day starts at six and goes until 9 p.m. And so, you know, again, one of the things that as, as leaders we need to do is just sort of make sure that we're checking in and, you know, right. that the, the people who are most diligent are, are the ones who are also, you know, most, most likely to try to burn the candle at both ends. Right. And speaking of leadership, I mean, this is a time where that is tested. And so I'd love to ask you about that, because that, again, is something that you guys cover a lot at Fast Company. What leaders are standing out across America or the globe, Stephanie? And I have to ask you to particularly assess President Trump's leadership. Well, um, I'll start with the ones that are standing out because they're, um, I think, inspiring their workers. And you know, I, I don't want to name names because there are a thousand leaders that I'll probably leave out if I do that. But, you know, we've seen a lot of corporations step up and say, um, you know, we're going to continue to pay workers for the next two, three weeks, whether you're able to come to work or not. We're going to rejigger the schedules, but your your pay is assured. We've seen companies activate sort of emergency insurance programs. They have programs that are designed to provide emergency insurance to their employees in the events of you know, natural disasters. And they're sort of saying, this has risen to the level of, of natural disaster. You know, you can tap this program. Um, you know, we've seen a, a lot of employers uh, do really interesting things where they're trying to, again, sort of shift their employees' resources. So, you know, we were making sweatshirts, now we're going to make PPE, um, and we're going to create an environment that makes it safe for you to come in. But the other thing that's so great about those, those shifting resources is that you're giving your employees a sense of purpose, which I think is so valuable in this environment, um, because I think people do want to help. I and mean, that's one of the things that has been really remarkable to observe over the course of these last six or seven weeks is the number of people who you know, would really like to be of assistance in any way they can, whether it's volunteering um, at local food banks or donating money so that hospital workers can get takeout from restaurants that are you know, really struggling themselves. So that all has been really inspiring. You know, um, I think I think I like a lot of Americans have been really frustrated with the federal government's response and, and Donald Trump's response in particular, because you know again people are looking for um, for 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 inspiration, but they're also looking for candor and honesty, and clearly that has not been a hallmark of this administration, in in my humble opinion, and I think that the. Um, I think that the the various um, fact checking sites that have have tried to uh, keep track of this president's um, uh, you know falsehoods would, would would bear that out. And so, you know, I, I think that you know it's it's I think it's frustrating for a lot of leaders in business because they won't they they feel they can't come out and and call the president out on it because, you know, um, the consequences are can be pretty great not only to their business, but also, you know, they, they become the subject of, you know, some some pretty um, pretty serious flaming on, on social media. Right. 
Let's talk about uh, the recovery and the road back and reopening the states and all that. What's your take on that? And what are you guys looking to do here? How do you think this is going to unfold? I think that there's going to be, uh, uh, again, a, a sort of disconnect between what business leaders and state leaders and even local leaders are going to be instructing what I, I'm hearing that business leaders are going to be much more cautious than public officials when it comes to returning their employees to work. And I'm, I'm speaking sort of generally and broadly, but certainly I think uh, leaders of big corporations, particularly those that have the luxury of having workforces that do work remotely already or have the ability to work remotely, they're going to really tiptoe into this. You, you and I talked to, I'm sure, some of the same leaders. I'm hearing, you know, Christmas, early 2021, before most of their workers come back into offices. I imagine that, um, you know, those are businesses that will operate in places where it will be open for business, according to the, the, the local and state officials, but corporations are going to tread much more, much more carefully. But there is this divide, right, Stephanie? I mean, here we are working in our homes, doing our white collar stuff, our service uh, type of companies. But if you are a blue collar uh, hourly worker in a factory, you know, it's sort of binary. You're either out or you're in. And once you're in, you know, there's risk, right? A lot of people in, say, in the food business weren't they never really shut down. They couldn't afford to. Uh, the, the, their jobs are sort of essential in a way. So is this sort of exacerbating perhaps a divide that's already existed? Yeah, I think it is exacerbating a divide that's already existed. I, I think the two things that will, the, 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 the couple silver linings, and believe me, these are, um, yeah, I'm sure, cold comfort if you're somebody that has to go into work every day and you're really fearing for your health. But and I've heard other people talk about this before, so this isn't an original thought, but you know, we used to call, it used to be very common to refer to people in those hourly and service jobs as, as unskilled labor. Now we're calling them essential workers. And so the, the dialogue around the work that hourly workers or service workers that they do is changing and there does seem to be a greater appreciation for the role that those workers play in our economy. So I'm hopeful that, you know, perhaps one of the interesting dialogues that will come out of this is, you know, a, a, a greater level of con conversation around what constitutes a living wage. Um, what should the minimum wage be? Um, you know, can you make a living on, you know, $7.50 an hour in some parts of the country? The answer is Clearly, no. And so, you know, I think a, a, a new conversation around um, around how to make sure that workers in hourly jobs and service jobs are actually making a living wage, and not only that, getting the kinds of protection they need from a healthcare and um, and and medical leave perspective, is long overdue. And I, I imagine that, that that will come out of this. Let's shift over to talk about tech and big tech in particular something you're keen on. The FANGs, I mean, these companies, they're doing just fine. In fact, they might well emerge from all this in even stronger positions. You look at Amazon, Google, Facebook, Netflix. I mean, it's remarkable. I mean, is this a problem 
and they were being taken to task before, but now that's on the back burner. Should they be taken to task again? Well, the, the fundamental issues with some of these companies around concentration of power, privacy, um, the way that they, in some cases, uh, treat workers, those don't go away. Um, and so while uh, there's no question that the general population, I think, has has changed its tune a little bit, and there are opinion surveys to suggest that you know big tech has sort of um, uh, is looked upon more favorably by the the general population now, much more so than even again a month, six weeks ago. I would say that if I were a big tech company, like you know, don't squander this um, wave of warmth that's coming from, um, you know, in, in the U.S. in particular, the sort of general population. Clearly, they are now being seen as a utility in a lot of cases. Um, you know, for a lot of us, um, for a long time, companies like Google have been an essential tool for classrooms. Teachers rely on Google a lot for, um, for online education and now even more so. You know, I, I, as I said, the, the, uh, the fundamental issues that we're creating, um, you know, greater scrutiny before the the crisis haven't gone away, and so I would say that you know if I if I were one of these uh, CEOs or you know perhaps more more importantly chief lobbying officers and 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 heads of their Washington offices and their general counsels, I would urge that rather than you know writing memos disparaging employees, um, that now is a time to actually um, take advantage of the goodwill and, you know, really try to build some bridges. And what about startups and small companies? I mean, you hear a lot about them getting uh, the checks from the government and on the one hand, on the other hand, Sand Hill Road and the venture worlds closed down. How is this going to play out going forward? Yeah, these are great questions. This crisis is so unknowable in so many ways, right? given the speed with which we've seen big unemployment numbers, and coupled with the fact that, you know, the the it's been it's been a really long time since we've had any kind of economic downturn to speak of. And so, you know, when I think about some of the um, the recessions that you and I have covered in some cases together, um, you know, when we saw the global downturn um, from the, the the Wall Street crisis in 2007, 2008, 2009, like the, la the, the previous recession, the previous economic crisis wasn't that far in the rearview mirror. So now you have, fast forward to today, you know, a lot of the companies that Fast Company writes about got started in 2008, 2009, 2010. So these are founders and CEOs and leadership teams that have never been through a downturn, have never been through a crisis. And uh, that the, 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 the worry I have, you know, without necessarily being able to look at any one company's books or look at any one company's financial situation is that, you know, I think in, uh, on that leadership front, which we talked about earlier, I think a lot of these companies are sort of ill-equipped to deal with the, the the sort of cultural stress that all of this is going to put on their companies. Um, 
I think it's also, you know, I was talking to um, someone that we've both known over the years, Ellen Coleman, who was the former CEO of DuPont. Famously, she got her job as um, CEO and president of that company in 2008 and 2009, like, you know, right after Lehman Brothers declared um, bankruptcy. You know, and she's now the CEO of a company called Carbon, which is a 3D printing and digital manufacturing company. But she said, you know, when the tide is out, you see all the rocks on the beach. And so, you know, I th- for, for a lot of startups, now that the tide is out, we're going to see the companies that actually have real business plans and real models that will be able to, you know, sustain them on the other side. And, you know, for a lot of them, we're going to see which ones were just sort of, you know, to mix my metaphors, which were houses of cards. Right. Let's talk about you a little bit, Stephanie. And Do we have you- to? Yes. <laughs> you grew up in the Chicago area, went to Northwestern. Did you ever think about why you decided to become a journalist? You know, I've told this story a couple of times. Um, I was a, I went to school as an English major and thought that I would end up in book publishing. I, I loved literature. I loved to read. Um, I, I thought I was an okay writer and thought that, you know, being a book editor or working in publishing was going to be something that would be really uh, suited to my skills. And um, I was at Northwestern, which has a really good journalism school. I was not interested in journalism, but the, I think the second week of class, the, uh, a young woman who lived across the hall from me uh, came back from um, lunch and she had a copy of the Daily Northwestern, which was the school's daily newspaper. And she had a front page story on the, in the paper. And she was a freshman. You know, she'd only been working at the paper for, for two weeks. And I, to me, that was just, it was like a miracle. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I thought, how is it that you can walk into the paper after class on a Tuesday and the next day on a Wednesday, you've got this print, you know, I was a print nerd even then, to have this this mag- this newspaper with your name on the front page. And I was just enamored. I thought it was the coolest thing. So I asked her if I could um, follow her into the paper. And uh, so she grudgingly let me tag along. And I, I was kind of hooked ever since. So, yeah, you and I worked together for quite some time at Fortune, and you worked at the Wall Street Journal and Bloomberg and business news, hard news. Um, there had not been a lot of women in the top positions. And I think you know, Nancy Gibbs at Time was one. Well, she was the first editor, female editor of Time, and then in particular, women of color. So what has it been like for you to be leading a news organization as a woman and as a woman of color? Uh, you know, again, I've been very fortunate in my career to have um, editors and mentors and bosses like you, Andy, who've, who've um, singled me out and supported me. And um, I'll never forget um, when you asked me if I would consider becoming an editor. I was actually a, a new mom on top of everything else. And um, I remember you had been named editor of Fortune. And Soon after, you came into my office and sort of said, I want to talk to you about whether or not you'd consider moving into editing. And it really took me by surprise. I did not think that that was what the meeting was going to be about. Um, But I ended up um, really thinking about it. And what tipped the balance in favor of me moving into editing, and that was really what set me on a path to becoming ultimately editor-in-chief of a fast company, is that... um, you know, I'd always been interested in in editing, and I had done some of it before I joined Fortune. 
I always like the mentorship part of, of being an editor, sitting down with somebody, especially a younger writer, and, and helping them along. But what really got to me is that you know, we used to, at Fortune, we'd have a, a daily edit meeting. And all of the editors would sort of sit at the table and all of the writers would kind of file around the back. Except once in a while, there would be a kind of cocky writer who'd take a seat at the table with the editors, if I remember correctly. But, you know, and I, 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 as I was contemplating whether or not I wanted to make the move, it was really, it was both physically and metaphorically, do I want a seat at that table? Do I want to keep lurking in the back or do I want a seat at the table? And how am I going to feel if someone else takes the job that Andy has just offered me and I see them every day sitting at the table and I'm sitting in the back and, and I realized I wanted to sit at the table. And so um, for me, that was really the moment where I, I think my career took a, 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 a turn. It, I would say for the better, <laughs> my family might say not so much. Um, but I've, I've loved every minute. Um, I've been very fortunate to have a job I love. And so for me as a woman and as a woman of color, you know, again, I, I count my blessings for having really great sponsors and mentors. And I think now the term everybody likes to use is ally, which is a, a great term. Um, I think for me, the hardest part is not um, exerting my own authority or managing the way I like to manage. I'm, again, I'm lucky. Um, I've been doing this for I wrote this down the other day. I've been a journalist for 27 years, which is hard to believe. So, you know, the, the, the battle scars and the, the gray hair give you a certain amount of authority in this job, which is really helpful. But I think where I find that I'm, um, where I find frustration is that I, I do think that, um, you know, over the years, male editors have had, have been treated differently and with a different afforded a, a different kind of respect than, than female editors. Last quick question, Stephanie. What about being an ally or a mentor yourself at this point? Do you enjoy doing that? Yeah, I still try to do it as much as possible. Um, I, you know, like you, I get a lot of um, over the transom requests to have a cup of coffee or jump on a phone call or you know, just talk through someone's career or their stories. And I really do try to do it as much as possible because, you know, I owe so much of my success in my career to people who have um, have, have taken an extra couple of minutes out of their day to um, give me a piece of advice or have that cup of coffee or take that phone call. So um, I, I really do try to be accessible. I'm actually surprised at the number of people who don't take you up on that. I, I, you know, a lot of times I'll, I'll respond to an introduction and then say, you know, let's set something up and, and, you know, I'm surprised that people aren't more aggressive about it, but I, it is something that I feel really strongly about because it's, it, I wouldn't be where I am today if it weren't for people like you and, and, and others along the way who took a little extra interest in, in helping me along. Well, thank you, Stephanie. And I didn't know that story about what was going on inside your head when I was talking to you about becoming an editor. So that's some new insight for me as well. Stephanie Meta, Editor-in-Chief of Fast Company, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Andy. You've been watching Influencers. I'm Andy Serwer. We'll see you next week. <laughs>